When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello and welcome to our WGTA Summer Specials. As with last year, this year a lot of our summer content veers away from the usual tactical stuff regarding FPL, like going through all the fixtures, going team by team and creating that sort of marathon price player analysis that leads into two massive episodes that you've probably fallen asleep by the end of, let's be fair. Instead, we're going to focus on the macro big picture issues which touch FPL as well as doing some of the tactical stuff, but we're giving some time to this sort of thing. Last year, uh, for longer-term listeners, you remember we had behavioural science, analytics and fandom and the interplay they have with fancy football, using guest speakers who had special knowledge of the subject. And this year, we're following a similar format, but given time restraints, it'll just be a two-parter rather than a trilogy. The topics this year are FPL and behavioural science, part two, Ross, FPL Raptor and Simon Marchback, and FPL and ICKs with FPL Nima and Sam Martin. Well, of course, an intro pod to the season, which will be out by the time you listen to this, as well as a price analysis and the final preseason pod as well will follow in a packed summer. The episode you're listening to is FPL and Behavioural Science Part 2, following on uh, from last year's really, really interesting summer special edition. And yet again, joined by Ross, aka FPL Raptor, and Simon March, and also uh, my co-host Lucy, who has battled to get onto the pod through some really, really bad weather and internet issues by the sounds of it. It's terrible weather in Teffield right now. It's absolutely torrential. Don't recommend coming up North anytime soon. I'm still enjoying the lack of football. I can tell from Twitter that with all the price chat and the position chat and the rotation chat and what are the expected minutes for X player, whatever, people are still uh, keen for it to restart, but I'm I'm not quite there yet. So um, for those that are keen for it to start, I hope that this pod provides ample preparation. We are Who Got the Assist. You can find Tom on the main account at WGTA underscore FBL. And you can find me, Lucy, at Lucy Hynett with two Ts. Sporting a concerningly pink cocktail glass. On this summer special, we're going to zoom out from last year's edition on one match day and instead look at how psychological and behavioural science can impact the FBL season from pre-season right through to season reviews, which will be explained as we go along. Great. Yep. As I mentioned earlier on, we're joined by two people with close knowledge of the subjects navigate this with um, the same people as had last year. It was such a great pod. I think it's actually my favourite ever. And I highly recommend you go back and listen to that one if you've got time and you haven't listened to that yet. Anyway, our guests today are academic, best-selling author and all-around sex symbol at FPR Raptor, aka Ross to his nan, and 
you know, still a sex symbol to, to a different demographic, perhaps. Uh, March Simon, Simon March, former FPL winner, um, who's making his fourth appearance, I think, on the pod, incredibly. First off, though, uh, Ross, you join us for another round, fresh off the first great season in content creation and the great book, The Mind Game, Under Your Belt, which I hugely recommend you all read. Really, really good. So we've got a lot last year, and I'm sure we'll speak about it again this year. Would you mind kind of introducing yourself, giving a quick skinny? Hi, Tom. Hi, Lucy. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It was, as you said, I think probably my favourite ever podcast I've ever recorded. We spoke for far, far too long, but we absolutely <laughs> loved it. And I think it was just a load of nerds all talking about a subject that they really, really enjoy. And hopefully a planet to FPL and helping you guys. But yeah, I, I've always loved psychology because I think along with physics, which is sort of the understanding of the universe, psychology is the understanding of who we are and what makes us tick. And I think there are very few things that are as interesting as finding out why you make the decisions you make and why you behave the way you do. And so from the age of about 14, 15, when I took it as a GCSE, I loved every second of it. And from then I knew that I wanted to do some sort of career integrating psychology into what I do. And I just love then applying that to FPL because FPL is my hobby as it is. I'm sure if you're listening to this and it applies a lot closer than I think a lot of people realize until they do have that introduction to it. Absolutely doesn't. We'll come on to that in a lot of detail later on in this pod. And we're also joined by Simon March, as I mentioned, former FPL champ and nowadays founder Spiles in Pavel Science in all things financial. Si, same again. Would you mind introducing yourself to a little bit? Sure. Uh, thanks again for having me back on. I'm Simon. If you know me at all, it's uh, probably due to my one big claim to fame, which is that I won FPL all the way back in 2015. More recently, you might have come across my articles for Fancy Football Scout, which uh, tend to focus on FPL from an economics and behavioral science point of view. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, here we are to talk about it. FYI, I've got some chops in this area. If you didn't know before, I used to head up one department of behavioral science practice. I was a practitioner of behavioral science for a while, worked in the area for three or four years. And I guess back way back when we started WTA, I used behavioral science a bit more than I do nowadays. Obviously, though, it's something I hugely enjoy from a sad slash academic angle alongside things like semiotics and jobs to be done theory. And if you don't know, you don't need to know. Trust me. Right. Let's get into the main body of the pod. This year, as Lucy mentioned, we're going to be zooming out from last year's edition, which focuses on the average game week. I think it was game week 13 we picked up and said, yeah, you know, let's look into this. What are the different psychological behavioral effects which impacts one game week? What we're going to do instead is look at with very, very broad brushstrokes how behavioral science and psychology can impact managers throughout the season. So this is for a regular season. There's a proviso, of course, that time of recording we're before the 2022-23 season, which does have a World Cup wedged into the middle of it controversially. But we're going to treat this as an evergreen, you know, usual standard season rather than a special one. Um, I think, Ross, can we start with you? I mean, you, you started to speak about psychology a little bit there. I'll kind of introduce, with help from Simon, what behavioural science is. But I mean, what, what is psychology and you know, cognitive psychology is something I always associate with you. Is that correct? Yeah. So psychology, if you just get going for a really basic definition, is the understanding of human behaviour. But it is a little bit more than that. When you introduce, so for those of you that don't know who I am, I'm a lecturer in sports psychology, but we do a lot of basic psychology at uni and we introduce the ABC model of psychology. What that basically is, is your feelings, your behaviour and your cognition, which is your thoughts. So that's what we're interested in psychology. Why do we feel the way we do? Why do we think the way we think? And why do we behave the way we behave? And it's all about trying to understand that. As Tom said there, I'm very interested in the cognitive element, which is really coming down to how can we optimize decision making and why do we make the decisions that we make in our everyday life? So more focused on yeah, decision making and thought processes as opposed to some of the very other interesting topics such as kind of sports psychology and uh, social psychology and occupational. There are various ones there, but today I suppose we'll be focused more on that decision making element. 
Absolutely. It's, it's the bit, the, the kind of little particle, I think, which intersects FPL the very most. And it's the same sort of for behavioral science. So I've explained a few times on this pod before that behavioral science or behavioral economics takes the underlying principles of how humans behave according to economics and infuses them with ir- irrationality. So trailblazers like Daniel Kahneman, who you may know from Thinking Fast and Slow, and Richard Taylor, the father of nudge theory, uh, people you may have heard of. And they effectively pointed out that the pure economics view of how humans behave had a bit of a problem with it. And that problem was because this pure economics view of how humans behave is you become like a Spock-like character. You weigh every decision thoroughly, weigh up all the outcomes, and you come to optimal decisions all the time to fit into economic models. And you kind of do something called maximizing utility. You become the best little economic unit you could possibly be and do the right thing for your own capital accumulation. What behavioralists said was, hey, that's not true. A human brain is a descendant animal one designed for a simpler time when the barrage of messages, decisions we make on a daily basis simply didn't exist. We're flawed, we're irrational. There's a great book called The Irrational Animal by Dan Ariely, which is worth reading. And as a result of all this information overload, we utilize shortcuts called heuristics and biases, which I'm sure you've heard of, to help navigate a cognitively complex world. In relation to what Ross does, I think behavioral science isn't one sort of thing. It is a discipline in some ways, but it also is kind of a collection of different theories and ideas which are complementary, which come from economics, of course, sociology, anthropology, and Ross's era of psychology. Sai, anything else to add? I mean, you definitely looked into the subjects a lot, didn't you, during your master's degree particularly? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's a, a really good uh, description. Um, I mean, one of the things that I, I find quite useful when thinking about behavioural science is almost everything that we talk about with respect to the biases and things that have had an evolutionary period. So, you know, over the last sort of three hundred thousand odd years that you know humans have been evolving, we've developed certain hardwired biases that aided our survival over that period. But you know, these biases they don't always benefit us in, in modern society and uh, mm. in modern decision making. So sometimes they work against us as well. So what behavioral science endeavors to do is essentially study these biases with a view to either circumventing them or even leveraging them to produce better outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what we're going to be doing for this podcast. So that's a very, very nice segue into the main body. Unfortunately, at this point, Lucy succumbed to those internet issues that we spoke about uh, just at the start of the podcast. So the rest of the pods, I'm afraid you're stuck with me, Simon and Ross talking psychology the whole time. Right. So let's start looking at that sort of season arc that we were talking about zooming out on a prototypical standard season and the first kind of checkpoint the first point in time we're going to zoom in on is pre-season aka now looking at some key heuristics biases and psychological impacts which are going to affect fpl managers so it's pre-season we're looking at our drafts you know constantly tinkering absorbing advice and information from a wide range of sources from our own research to others content and begin to home in on what we think the best game at one team is in the maelstrom of excitement as the season's kickoff approaches the observation is that we start the season in a bit of kind of bewildered way don't we there's no form as it were to go on sorry on his fc And the only concrete things we have are player prices and fixtures. And beyond that, we go into the realm of subjective thought. We have no concrete case for basically anyone except past records to say that any player should be in our team. And then we also need to factor in price as a constraint on team complexion. And in this fact vacuum, we see many cognitive effects take root. And I think here we really need to start with herd mentality. Simon, it's definitely something which pervades all of FPL, not just pre-season, but it's definitely something which has a huge impact, isn't it? 
Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, when we're talking about herd mentality, we're sort of talking about a kind of social contagion, you know, in the same way that you might see in economic bubbles and trends and, you know, all, all sorts of things. And it, it's essentially because we look to others to see how we should behave, but also we don't want to stand apart from what we see as the social norms. And these things are, become more extreme when we're in communities. So things like FPL Twitter, uh, for example, you know, amplifies what, what we've come to call bandwagons, you know, where we see a certain player and, you know, maybe it starts off quite small with a, you know, maybe an idea or something like going five at the back or, you know, mm. all these things have been examples in, in the past. And it evolves into sort of the FPL equivalent of a, a sort of mass hysteria where <laughs> actions are, are detached from the sort of underlying reality of a, of a situation. So you have to either kind of really check yourself and step away from it or, or you get caught up in it a bit. Absolutely. I mean, long-term listeners to the pod will know my usual refrain on this, which is that herd mentality is defined by the twin impulses of greed and fear. It's, it's linked to evolutionary psychology in some ways, but imagine, you know, cave person you, some food's brought back to the dwellings and you know, there's twin impulses, aren't there? There's that idea of greed. You know, you want to eat so you're strong enough to survive another day and ultimately procreate. We are animals after all. That's why we're here. And there's fear on the other side of it. If you don't eat it, then you'll not survive. And I guess, Ross, to take this kind of high academic theory into the depths of fantasy football, this translates into the FPL preseason in numerous different ways. From our perspective, when it comes to players to pick, effective ownership consideration, and those of other matters, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it really is amplified by this generation of, sort of social media. If you think 15, 20,000 people watching a video or some of Andy's getting a quarter of a million people all seeing the same team. And then you scroll through Twitter and you see 100 people all picking the same player. Back in the day, even as little as sort of five to 10 years ago, yes, Twitter was around, but the community wasn't that big. You might have only been able to get your hands on five or six other people's drafts. So you wouldn't have seen these bandwagons emerge. But the more people that join the Twitter community, the more people that go on all of these different forums, create videos, create podcasts, the bandwagons get bigger and bigger. Herd mentality gets a more serious issue. And we got to a stage last season, I'm very, very interested to see it this season, where the game week one template was so strong. Mm. And by that, I mean everyone in the community had the same team. We had the Ben Rama and Antonio double up. And it, it got to a stage where you were so heavily punished if you went away from that template because the herd all had the same team. You're almost forced to either take a huge risk in game week one, which can be to your own detriment, or you're forced to just go along with it. And normally herd mentality isn't a, a conscious decision. It's a cognitive bias. You can't help it a lot of the time. Sometimes you actually are conscious of it. You're thinking, I don't want to go with the herd, but I, I sort of really should. Otherwise, it's a massive risk. And then we started to get into the risk-taking territory. So it's a bit of an issue, really. And I can only see it getting worse. And I don't really have an answer for it as such. I guess just try and play your own game. But it's difficult to do when you can see thousands of other teams all looking very similar. Absolutely. In preseason, the key motivation behind no, an unconscious thing you're not consciously thinking oh we know that I'm going to fall prey to her mentality it's something as you said that penetrates your mind uh, through seeing all of these other teams and as you said with the Ben Rama and Antonio double up and um, the key reason is really safety safety in numbers you can create a team which has the highest effective ownership which is something which I think is the zenith of herd mentality in FPL and you can create that team in game week one based on your perception of what Twitter's going to be and you know you've even got outsourcing to the likes of Fix likes of live FPL now who are going to tell you what the 
anticipated that effective ownerships are going to be. So you can avoid all downsides. It's a blessing and a curse in some ways. It's a blessing because, you know, it means that you're, as you said, you're not going to take a massive risk and, and, and hurt yourself early on. But it also means that it's a bit stifling because you're not able to play the game in that level of freedom that you used to be able to play it. Certainly for me, when all I saw was a few of my mates in the group chat, what are they going to do? All right, I'm going to go against that. It's now flipped completely. And it's about me kind of going, oh, God, can I afford to go against that? Some obvious things, like, you know, Mo Salah, Game at One, New promoted Opposition, absolutely, captain. But other stuff, players like Ben Rama, Antonio, those sort of ancillary picks have suddenly become more important than ever in terms of effective ownership. And Simon, can we even counter this? Is there any counter to it? Or are we just pointing it out and saying, you know what, this exists, it might be an opportunity for you, but equally it's something to really, really fear at times. I think I think part of it is is being judicious about it because not all all bandwagons are bad, you know. Just in the same way that that not all economic bubbles are, are inherently bad, you know. It's it, judging which ones to get involved in and and knowing when to come off them as well. That that's that's just as important. But I think the other side of it is that early on in the season, it, it just doesn't really matter that much. I, I think last season, or was it like game week two or something? Bruno Fernandez scored a hat trick. Was it was it game week two? Game yeah. week one, first game week. Was it game week one? Okay, yeah. So anyone who didn't have Bruno Fernandes then was probably thinking, all right, well, you know, season over, you know, it's game week one, season over. I didn't have Bruno Fernandes and and that's it. And, you know, of course it it wasn't. And and there's been loads of examples of that, not even just at the beginning of the season, but all throughout the season. You know, there's loads of people that I know that didn't have Salah for his massive haul against Man United and still finished really well and stuff. So I I think we probably overstate the, the fear aspect of it. And while it's not a good idea to, you know, just completely... Um, you know, take massive risks in, in every aspect of your, your game with one team. You're not going to get everything 100% right. And what you don't get right probably isn't going to punish you as much as, as, you, as you think it will. I, I guess it is, and we'll talk about FOMO in, in a little bit, because I think that that's another all-important thing. But you're, you're right in loads of ways that there are loads of people who didn't have Bruno Fernandes game week one last season, and there are loads of people who didn't have the high scorer you know, two years ago. I remember, I think that was Mo Salah when he scored a hatch against, I think it was Leeds game week one um, two years ago. Um, and I looked at the, the ownership and the effective ownership, and the effective ownership was pretty high because of the captaincy, but the ownership level was only around 30% for Salah. And it was definitely a case of saying, you know what, actually, you're in the majority if you didn't own Salah that game week. It's very odd at the start of the season. And you know, one bad decision or one sort of thing that doesn't really work out for you doesn't mean it's the end of your season. But it can obviously mean you're in an initial hole and it's quite hard to then recover from that, especially if you have to buy. I think about Antonio at the start of last year. If you had to buy that guy in pretty much straight away then you're already kind of behind other people who had him before. And I think that's the inherent risk of being without the herd mentality pick to begin with. Let's stick with drafting for a moment. I think we'll come on to early season in a little bit where I think those kind of Antonio examples kind of fit in. And I think what's interesting is to consider a couple of psychological effects, which are on one hand, the novelty effect, um, and on the other hand, the ambiguity effect. So these are two big impacts which affect behaviour. And it's super interesting thinking about them in the context of preseason, as they interact with each other a lot and create this conflict in managers' minds. That's because they, the definitions essentially rub up against one another a whole lot. Novelty effect is basically like being a magpie. 
always being attracted to a shiny new thing and valuing that over old things. Think about a child always choosing the shiny new toy over the much-loved predecessor. Thinking about Erling Haaland over Kevin De Bruyne, for example, especially if we factor in herd mentality, if we if Haaland does end up with a very high perceived EO at the start of the season, that could be a good example, perhaps, of the novelty effect in play. People really like that kind of shiny new toy. On the other side of it, though, you have the ambiguity effect. That stands diametrically opposite to the novelty effect. We stick with sure things over new things sometimes as well. And that can mean that you value certainty, especially in times of uncertainty. So with the captaincy, for example, being the number one sort of most important decision you make, according to Ross Dowsett on his preseason video, um, thinking about life without someone like Mo Salah in game week one uh, against Fulham away is something which is quite unconscionable. And you'll kind of, that's where the ambiguity effect kicks in because you're not going to be wanting to take that risk, perhaps, about going against this guy. And the same perhaps applies to Trent too, where maybe you'll buy Trent, despite the fact that Andrew Robertson or Van Dyke could represent cost-effective alternatives to Trent. I mean, Ross, I mean, you spoke about obviously the captain example is one thing, but like, what do you think about the interaction between these two biases and how they impact managers at the drafting stage? It's really important to reinforce at this stage because we sort of get carried away that the very nature of cognitive biases is that sometimes you'll be unaware and often you'll be unable to challenge and change these things and you don't necessarily need to. So as Tom said, I think the key thing here is that you acknowledge these wherever possible and that you can try and improve your decision making. But don't stress if you're thinking these are a lot of cognitive biases and I probably fall prey to all of them because I definitely do. I think it is that fine balance. I don't think you want to fall into the novelty effect. I don't think you want to fall into the ambiguity effect. I think you need to assess each situation individually because I would say majority of the time I prefer wherever possible at the start of the season's trust a trusted asset for example Salah scoring over 250 points was it four or five seasons in a row yeah it would suggest that he's probably a good bet to start the first four to six <laughs> game weeks the, the same with Son the same with Trent Alexander-Arnold if there are these players that are tried and tested it's not necessarily the novelty effect there I think that's just common sense and that's logic Equally, I don't like this idea that players always flop when they first come to the Premier League and no one that can hit the ground running. We seem to focus on those negative aspects. and This is more psychology there for you. But we focus on those negative aspects such as I remember when Havertz came to the Premier and he struggled. Werner came to the Premier and he struggled. And there are players that hit the ground running. The one that sticks in my mind, because I'm a Manchester United fan, is Bruno Fernandes coming in at mid-season. Oh, yeah. He absolutely smashed it. First five or six game weeks, he had something like seven or eight returns. So there are players that can hit the ground running. And I fully expect Haaland to to hit the ground running. And I don't necessarily think we should avoid him just because he's a new asset, just because it's an ambiguous situation. I I think you really do need to assess each situation, look at the context and make the most analytical, logical decision you can. Yeah, I mean, you've got other examples like Aubameyang from the Arsenal perspective, did the same thing as Bruno a few years before. And obviously Mo Salah himself showed up from Italy and we were all kind of saying, oh, you know, let's let's have a punt on this guy. Absolutely smashed it. But I suppose, you know, the Rose Gallery, including the likes of Timo Werner, late risers, man, do loom large in people's minds. I mean, Simon, how do you deal with these two seemingly opposite cognitive effects when you're putting your team together at the start of the season? I think uh, novelty is very difficult because novelty is inherently very attractive. You know, it's a big part of all marketing, really, is based on uh, on novelty. You know, if you can't make something better, <laughs> make, make it newer. You know, we definitely feel that, especially when new players are coming into the league, it's much more exciting to go with Haaland and Nunes, you know, over Vardy and Ings, for example, despite the fact that, you know, Vardy at least is, is you know, is well proven in that context. And, and I think when we move into ambiguity, I, I see 
ambiguity is one of those more sort of self-preservation biases. I mean, good, good examples, you know, when we look at ambiguity, uh, it, it's not the way that you maximize things. So the, the classic kind of examples of, of ambiguity biases are, are, are things like fixed rate mortgages, you know, versus variable ones. And variable mortgages tend to be cheaper over time, but people like to go with fixed rate ones because they like to know where they are. And, you know, you see similar things in, in investing. And, and I mean, the way that personally I like to approach these things is, is to say, okay, in my game week one team, I'm going to have about 75% of it really reliable assets that I know, know are going to start and that I know that I can be reasonably confident in, in delivering because they've delivered in the past. And then I'll put, you know, my other 25% will, will be sort of my YOLO fund. Uh, the, the players that I'm going to take a bit of a risk on and you know, make it make it a little bit interesting and, and see if I can use those to you know to gain a bit of an, an advantage and I think it's useful to have that sort of structure to to work around and I think you know at the beginning of the season leaning into anything that can help you manage ambiguity is is you know a really effective uh, approach. A good example is, is sort of the, the weather. You know, there's lots of factors that, that come into working out what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. As I understand it, you know, what the biggest factor tends to be what is the weather today. And it's, it's really a, a perfect indicator, but it's rarely completely off. You know, you don't, you don't often go from sort of 30 degrees to five degrees. I, I always think about that when I'm, when I'm picking my team, because if a player you know, scored well last season, say they scored 150 points plus, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do the same this season, but they're probably not going to be massively off that. You never know for certain, but it's a, it's a good indicator. And I, I think you know, looking at those sort of things is really uh, useful. And, and it's, it's part of the reason why what we quite probably unfairly call casuals tend to do quite well early on in the season, because yeah. when they come to pick their teams, they're looking at who scored the best last season. They're using name recognition. You know, they're picking players that they've they've heard of. Whereas, you know, you know, we're spending a lot of time thinking about it. We want to make it more interesting. We want to overthink it a little bit. And you know, as a result, we're we're looking for players that nobody else has ever heard of. That's going to give us an edge. And a lot of the time, those players don't hit the ground running. There's very very few examples of players that are new to the Premier League that have really delivered right from the the start. And and we kind of over remember them. We we think there are more because we remember the ones that that have. But in reality, you know, most of them, even if they do do well at all, it, it takes them sort of three months plus to to actually hit their stride. Well, it's like it's survivorship bias, isn't it? Which we'll speak about in just a little bit. But that that really is the nub of that particular kind of situation there and that's for sure um, but I think you know, what you were talking about a second ago in terms of trying to find structures and ways to kind of make your decisions to cut through ambiguity does lead to a bit of a problem which is my favorite psychological sort of impacts that's framing and uh, this is basically using stats or misusing stats to frame your argument and Ross does a really good example of this in his book and I did the same a while back in psychology corner but here's a conundrum that listeners can definitely all guess the answer to it's all for fun but please indulge me I'm just going to do this again just to kind of show how if you frame things differently, you, you can really give different pictures. So I'm going to tell you about two different players. Player one, last season, this player was simply on fire. He got into double digits for goals and assists for the second season in a row. And his blistering FPL form was simply sensational. He managed a huge seven double digit hauls, was very close to top in the league in terms of expected goal involvement and recorded the frankly ridiculous 0.73 expected goal involvements per game. This player's red-hot form means he's an absolute must-buy for our Game It 1 teams next season, as his pedigree, output last season, and overall value are simply unquestionable. 
Here's player two. Last season, this player fell woefully short. His final FPL points total was disappointing. He finished 50 points down the season before, and his overall output as well decreased significantly. He managed six fewer goals and got three fewer assists in the season prior. And he also tumbled down the expected goal involvement charts and in truth, spent most of the season playing second fiddle to another player on his team who was the real talisman of that team. This guy is in real decline. He managed to only score you know, the same amount of points he did five or six seasons ago. So, you know, he's at the back end of his sort of curve now. And he's had his lowest goal per shot ratio in the whole time he's been in the Premier League, showing this player is a fading force. Who are these two players? I'm not going to assault your intelligences. Both these players are the same player and both players are Harry Kane. But that's just a good example, Ross. And um, you spoke about this in your book as well, about how looking at data and presenting data can have a real impact on what managers think. And talking about Simon's point as well, when you turn to other people to cut through the ambiguity, something I think framing that needs to be kept in mind, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's another one of those cognitive biases. And they're not all like this, but it's another one where it can be completely conscious. It can be something where you are actively seeking on Twitter, you're going through and you're actively trying to find things that, again, this is confirmation bias, where you're trying to actively find things that will confirm your prior belief. And you're only reading those threads, which are positively talking about Son because you want to put Son in your game week one draft. Then that way you're almost consciously seeking framing. And it can be the other way where you're watching a content creator and just by a subtle change in tone. I mean, Tom's was quite obvious there, but it can be really subtle. It can be almost as much as me saying, I'm not sure about Son versus I think he's a great option. The way you can frame almost identical data in very different ways. And this is one that's quite scary for me because a lot of people say that analytics and statistics are objective, but this would suggest that you can turn objective statistics. They're the same statistics for the same player, but you can either turn them into a positive frame or a negative frame. And it does show that even with analytics and statistics, we can introduce our own human interpretation and we turn what it should be in a very objective measure into something quite subjective and biased. There's a researcher bias as well, isn't there, that comes into play. You know, the, the individual, when they're gathering the data to present it, they're likelier to bring their own set biases to things. Like, you know, in the past, there's a really interesting kind of eye test versus data point. In the past, the eye test was profoundly subjective. You know, two people can watch a game of football and both take completely different things out of it. And the data sometimes is presented as being a sort of objective force that we didn't have before. And now, you know, that's kind of, you know, the, the, the savior effectively of, of football analysis in lots of ways. But even that isn't objective all the time, depending on who's delivering it. If you are, just to be dumb theory a little bit here, but if you're outsourcing the job of thinking about FPL to other people, letting them influence the decisions you make, which a lot of listeners do, a lot of people do. I do it as well. I listen to people like both of you. I just say do a bit of due diligence and make sure you do your own kind of stuff. What do you make of framing, Simon? As much as framing itself is an art, I think interpreting the information that's presented to you is also an art. I mean, you know, when we talk about framing, you know, politicians are kind of classic examples of it. Yeah, you know, everyone knows that politicians, you know, frame things to fit their particular agenda. But you know, scientists do as well. When someone says something, it's it's scientifically proven. The truth is, what what it really means is that that scientist has managed to you know frame the data in a way that that you know suits their hypothesis mm. um, the the best uh, a lot of the time. And and I think 
one of the useful things when thinking about this is is or thinking about framing is is what isn't being said what what's being left out of the discussion and the best way i think about you know figuring that out is uh, to think for yourself but also to to use original sources so when someone's talking to you about data they're picking out data that that might suggest that this player is uh, you know is really good for you know the opening game weeks because um, you know, the XG or whatever was uh, yeah, really impressive uh, recently. Well, look at what they're not saying. You know, look at uh, you know, what factors might interrupt that. You know, maybe the opposition is going to be a particularly difficult opposition for this player, or maybe they're going to be moved into a, a different position. That, you know, there's all sorts of things. And, and it's, it, it's unlikely that in FPL, anyone's going to be purposefully trying to you know, push a, a particular agenda mm. um, to try and uh, push you off. But people have opinions. And people formulate and, and express their opinions uh, in, in ways that make them yeah, as convincing as possible. Um, and so I think use it all and digest it, but always uh, sense check it based on your own criteria before you make a decision. Yeah, I'm just going to bring in another bias here whilst we're on this. Uh, I don't think we were planning to talk about it any later, which is the law of instrument, which really nicely comes in Ooh. here. So for those of you that don't know... It's a, it's, a, it's a quote I love. I'm going to try not to butcher it because I don't have it in front of me. But it's essentially to do, it was Maslow came up with the quote and he said, if you treat every situation with a hammer, you'll like treat every situation as a nail. I've absolutely butchered the quote. But essentially what he's saying <laughs> is if you approach every situation in the same manner with the same set of tools, you're going to approach it all identically and you won't come up with any new solutions. So I just think that along with this, as well as seeking your own original sources, try and seek several sources as well. Use underlying data, use the eye test, use, by all means, use content credit. The whole point of us doing this pod is to try and help you. So we're not saying disregard that. But if you can use several sources, corroborate and collate based on that, hopefully, fingers crossed, that will improve your decision making as well. Oh, that's really interesting, Ross. And I think definitely you know, trying to find information from an array of different sources is really important. I think also one key final one we need to talk about in terms of an impact on an FPL manager as an individual during preseason is decision fatigue, because we're going to be drafting a billion times. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but if I look back on my Google photos, there's no pictures of me and my girlfriend. There's no pictures of my house. It's literally all of July is FPL teams. <laughs> like all little kind of bits and pieces that I've changed. And decision fatigue is the big thing that goes hand in hand with that. And this is the phenomenon where over time you make different decisions and your decision making is impacted by the fact you're making decisions on and off for a long period of time. There's a really good study done in courtrooms in the 2010s where researchers noted something really interesting. Prisoners who were going for their parole hearings were more likely to be given parole in the morning than they were in the afternoon. Prisoners who had their cases heard in the morning were given parole 70% of the time, whereas prisoners who had later hearings were given it about 10% of the time, despite the case conforming to a decent level of similarity. And the reason for this was the judge. They were constantly deliberating, receiving advice and hearing arguments and no matter how brilliant a person they were they've got to be an incredibly intelligent person to be a judge there was still a biological and psychological toll taken out on that individual as they made decisions after decisions after decisions and that was based on where in the day they were and how much cognitive load they'd expended throughout the day 
And there's nothing malicious about the judge's behavior. This is an example of decision fatigue. It's the sort of thing that makes you more slapdash at the end of the workday. Or mean the defender plays a sloppy back pass in the 90th minute, allowing the opposition to equalise. Roy Baumeister, a bona fide expert in this field, says this, good decision-making is not the trait of the person in the sense that it's always there. It's a state that always fluctuates. And if you draft heavily, you can see it. I don't know about you guys, but like later on in the drafting process, I'm making bizarre decisions. And you know, we've all reached that point in the drafting process where a particular player is brought in and you think, uh-oh, right, I'm done. I'm walking away from this for a little bit. And I, you know, it, it definitely has an impact, doesn't it, Simon? Decision fatigue. Is it something that we should be avoiding? Is it something that we should kind of be rationing our time to try to ward off against its impacts? I think it can definitely help to, to try and do that. Uh, I mean, because decision making and, and you know, the mental energy behind it is, is a finite resource and, and so you hear often examples of successful people like Steve Jobs is a, is a classic example of someone who you know wore a black turtle neck sweater every day so they didn't have to think about what they were going to wear each day you know so they could all use that that brain power and focus it on uh, on important things Barack Obama is another one you know apparently he had four suits and it just reduced uh, you know that decision so that he could focus on you know the many other decisions that he would have to make during the day and I, I think anything that you can do to to sort of reduce the decision making burden particularly in in early season is is really valuable because like you say you, you can kind of get yourself you know twisted in nuts a bit and and I think one thing that I would really recommend uh, it might be too late by the time people listen to this is, is to try and come to it late or if you do do an initial draft do an initial draft and then you know leave it a week or you know if you like even leave it until the week before the deadline to revisit it I mean we enjoy doing it and we all look forward to, to the new game but spending a month plus tinkering with your your FPL team probably isn't going to do you, you know, the, the favours that, that you think it, it will. I, I think just to sort of build on it, the decision fatigue, a lot of people when they'll see this will think it means you, you get tired after making decisions. And that is definitely part of it. You do feel that fatigue and you make incorrect decisions, but it is so much more than that. I was doing a little bit of reading before we came on some of the latest research on decision fatigue. This is a quote from a paper in 2018 says, evidence suggests that individuals experience decision fatigue, demonstrate an impaired ability to make trade-offs, prefer a passive role in the decision-making process, so are likely to be quite passive, let others make decisions for them, and often make choices that seem impulsive or irrational. And to be honest, that sounds like the opposite of what we want to be as FPL managers. They are three things which sound the opposite of ideal. So I think that it, it is really dangerous if you spend too much time making decisions each week to the point where it's starting to make become a burden on your FPL game. And I just want to add to that as well. I don't think we're going to talk about it today. The idea of sleep pressure combining with that, because I've experienced this as well. So throughout the day, if you don't mm. know from morning to evening, the reason that sometimes you'll feel quite negative in the evening and you'll be slurring your words is that we have this thing build up, which is sleep pressure. And I won't go into it in too much detail. It's to do with different changes in the brain, but this sleep build up, this sleep pressure builds up throughout the day. And as sleep pressure increases, our cognitive functioning decreases. So by the time we're ready to go to sleep in the evening, our brain is a mess pretty much. And they've done a lot of studies in chess, which look at the role of sleep pressure in decision-making. Long story short, the more sleep pressure, the more impulsive our decision-making and the more risks we take. So by the end of the evening, say it's at 1 a.m., if you're forced to make a decision in FPL half an hour before the price rises at 1.30, you're likely to make a very impulsive, irrational and risky decision. So if you think, if you couple decision fatigue with sleep pressure 
and you think that maybe you're doing a late night tinkering session from 11 p.m. till 2 a.m., you've been making decisions for three hours and it's late at night, you've got sleep pressure and decision fatigue, I'm, I can almost guarantee that you're going to make a very impulsive, risky, probably incorrect decision. So try and think about that. Make your decisions slightly earlier in the day if possible. And also just try to do it in short bouts. That's really interesting as well. That sleep pressure, dear me. Well, I think let's let's move on from preseason. But just to summarize the things that we've gone through here, herd mentality to begin with seems to be a path to safety is what we're saying. There's potentially an opportunity to kind of exploit that. But effective ownership, and the real politique of the situation, as Ross inferred, may mean that acknowledging that aspects of our decision-making is for the best. And as Simon said, weighing up ambiguity with novelty is a good idea. A 75-25 split in terms of safe and risky, in terms of our 100 million allocation at the beginning of the season, may make a lot of sense. Framing is an art. Politicians frame things. Scientists frame things. And data isn't entirely objective. Do your own work. That's super important, but obviously fully aware that everyone can do that. And finally, decision-making and liberating is a finite resource. There are biological and psychological factors. Your natural rhythm throughout the day can change your decision-making purity. So when you're doing your preseason drafting, be mindful of the decisions you're making and try to reduce the burden on yourself in the drafting process. Otherwise, you may find yourself completely out of whack. Ultimately, you're never going to escape all of these things, but hopefully being mindful of just the select few heuristics and biases that we've spoken about, there are loads, but the ones that we've homed in on here can hopefully give you some guardrails as you're building towards that game week one team. And there you have it. Hopefully some information that was useful for pre-season. Let's take a break there and move on to early weeks to start for this. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? So we're back and it's time to kind of move on from the pre-season stage. Game week one has come and gone and it's the early weeks now. You know, it's those early game weeks, the height of the FPL frenzy too. People are so engaged. There are more managers active now than at any other time in the season. And the FPL transfer market is absolutely crazy as players are bought and sold depending on what they did or didn't do just last game week. The naysayers and optimists are clashing over certain players. Are they essential? Are they in form? Let's see what we can apply to this time of the season using a behavioural slash psychological lens. And I suppose, Ross, I mean, we, we've touched on this a little bit in the first bit but FOMO, fear of missing out, I mean, everybody knows it. It's one of those that we just need to speak about. I feel like this is particularly heightened, isn't it, at the start of the season? Yeah, I mean, Simon touched really nicely on it earlier about that kind of fear that you've you've lost FPL in that first two weeks because you missed that 20-point haul. And it can force us to make decisions out of FOMO, I think, a lot more earlier on in the season. I think if you compare that to the back end of the season from sort of game week 30 onwards, People tend to go their own way. And I think there's a lot less FOMO. But early on in the season, it's almost like you've got that perfect clean slate. You've got the perfect opportunity to win FPL. And you're so scared about harming that possibility that you are absolutely petrified of of going against the herd. And therefore, FOMO takes course. Now, FOMO, I find it an interesting one, FOMO, because I think a lot of the time, and if you don't know what FOMO is, it is the fear of missing out. It's that apprehension that others are having a good experience of some kind. Others are getting all of those FPL points whilst you're not getting those FPL points. Sometimes if you're worried about a player and you have that fear of missing out, it might be a sign that that player is worth picking. So I do think that sometimes people will be like, oh, I'm picking that player because of FOMO. Or are you picking that player because you think they're a really good pick and you think they're going to score you lots of points? Therefore, they're a great option. So I think sometimes because FOMO's made its way into sort of mainstream media and also into the FPL community, 
we sometimes misidentify FOMO with just making a good decision based on a player that we don't own. And I think that's something, again, I don't really have an answer as to that other than just trying to be as objective as possible, using various sources, using underlying data, corroborate with close friends that you trust to be as unbiased as possible. Just to build on that as well, like at the start of the season, I think that there's definitely a core of people who will always say, oh, that's a FOMO pick. I'm going to reject that completely. I'm going to jump on this guy because he's got great fixtures coming up. And, you know, there's definitely some underlying stats which show that he's very good. And that can definitely be a thing for sure. But as you say, Ross, there's definitely a little bit of ambiguity about which one's the correct decision to make. And as you say, trying to conflate FOMO with a really boring decision in some ways, I think can also mean that managers completely overlook what is a really bloody obvious decision for fear of being seen to be making a very boring move. But ultimately, because there are, as I said at the beginning, so many people now engaged in FPL at this point, it's actually not a bad thing to do. And in the early season context specifically, getting on these players early, early-ish, don't worry if they're 6.6 now and they start at 6.5. If you think, okay, this is a player like a Jared Bowen type who's going to do well over the course of the season, at least having that in mind, they could do that. And you got in very, very early is really important. I mean, Simon, throughout your kind of time in FPL, I'm sure you've seen FOMO all over the place, haven't you? Essentially, FOMO is the fear of the, the kind of anticipated regret of, of, of not doing something. Like, you know, the, the, the kind of classic example of the effect of FOMO over kind of rational decision-making is, is lotteries. That If you were just working entirely rationally and looking to maximise your output, you, you would never spend money on a lottery ticket mm. um, because your, your odds of actually winning anything are, are, are so low. And, you know, in terms of FPL, the psychological benefit of avoiding FOMO out strips the value of maximizing your your payoff it's so difficult especially early in the season where we don't have a lot of information like ross says you, you know you fear missing out on a certain player's scores yeah, that could be a good indicator that actually that is a player that you should uh, be paying attention to so when we talk about heuristics and maybe that is a positive heuristic you know positive sort of shorthand way of, uh, of, of making decisions early on in the season later on in the season you know it leads you to things like triple captaining shane duffy which is you know, not as beneficial, um, at least in my experience. It's a tough one. I, I think really you have to kind of come back to the fact that early on in the season, you can afford to to make these mistakes. You know, if they work out for you, uh, it hasn't won you FPL. Uh, if they don't work out for you, it hasn't lost you FPL. You know, it's, it's a stage of the season for figuring things out. Definitely. The only thing that I would also kind of throw in here is the bandwagon effect, which is, which is self-explanatory. We all know it. We've all kind of, every time that, a player has come to prominence early season, you always get the naysayer saying, oh, that's just a bandwagon. That's going to f- go off the tracks and burn. Now, Ross, you speak a lot in your book about trusting your gut in the absence of data in some ways, but I think specifically for pre-season, the absence of data often means the gut assumes a real prominence, doesn't it? Yeah, it's always such an interesting debate and I, I love it because it, it applies to everyday life as much as FPL and that's what we try and do with this pod and the videos that I do as well. But the the truth is no one really knows about gut feeling, to be honest. We've been studying it since sort of the 70s, as, as far back as the late 60s, there's been research on gut feeling. No one really knows exactly what gut feeling is. No one really knows exactly how accurate gut feeling is. Everyone has their own opinions. And it really comes down to how you want to play FPL and what's important to you as an FPL manager. I mean, there is research out there to suggest that gut feeling is this accumulation of of experiences, positive and negative, and we accumulate them and make a really clever correlated decision based on all these different 
different experiences. I'm not necessarily sure I buy that. Sometimes I feel like I do, sometimes I don't. But for me, the benefit of gut feeling is that you're just less likely to resent those around you. You're more likely to have a better understanding of the way that you make decisions. And you're more likely to be in touch with who you are and make decisions that fit your behavioral profile and what you want to get out of the game. So I often find if I make a decision according to gut feeling and it doesn't go very well, I feel significantly less anger than if I make a decision that I made because I was scared of ownership or because I was listening to the pod and Tom suggested this player. Like if I make a decision based on someone else, I tend to feel quite a lot of resentment and anger when that doesn't go very well. Whereas if it's my gut feeling that I've chosen that player, I tend to like that. And, and for me, I've really reduced the amount of gut feeling decisions I make because I think if you want to be very successful in FPL, you can't rely on gut feeling because gut feeling is largely an emotional response. It can be quite impulsive. And to be honest, unless you are very in tune with your gut feeling and you know exactly what the source of your gut feeling is, it can mislead you. So I've reduced that quite a bit and it did help me last season reducing that gut feeling. Where I use gut feeling now is in 50-50 decisions. And if and I by 50-50 decision, I don't mean when I'm picking between two players. And I think a lot of people mistake a 50-50 decision with I'm choosing between A and B. It could still be a 90-10 decision if you're choosing between A and B. There could be a clear favorite. So only when I've really narrowed it down to, I really genuinely cannot choose. They've got very similar underlying data. They've both got good fixtures. They both take penalties. They both play 90 minutes. If I get to that stage, that's when I start to favor gut feeling because at the end of the day, it is pretty much a coin flip. And speaking of coin flips, if anyone wonders a different technique, because some people will say to me, I don't actually know what my gut feeling is telling me. The, the best way to do this is a coin flip. So if you're choosing between A and B, flip a coin and either in midair, you might get a bit of an inkling as to what you want that coin to land on. Or as you release the coin, say heads, like so I did this last season for Antonio and Bowen captaincy. If heads is Antonio and tails is Bowen, as you release it, if it says heads, which is Antonio, and you think to yourself, oh, I want to flip again, best two of three then you probably wanted to captain Bowen. If as you release it and it shows Antonio, you're like, yes, like you feel that almost like a micro expression. That's my best way to uncover your gut feelings. It's, it's very difficult. I don't think there's a correct answer for gut feeling. Gut feeling can mislead you in quite a few scenarios. So in my opinion, reduce it as much as possible, but utilize it to try and increase your enjoyment and also in those 50-50s. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty suspicious of uh, anything my, uh, my gut says or does. I think there is a, an argument that with a certain level of experience, decisions based on instinct might lead to better outcomes. And one of the examples that I always like around this is about uh, veteran firefighters being able to, to tell kind of subconsciously when a building is about to collapse, you know, and they get all the firefighters and all the people out um, and they can't verbalize exactly what it is. They just know, just their experience has, has formed an instinct and they just know that it's going to happen. And gut feeling or heuristics, you know, these are shorthand ways of making sense of, of loads of data. And although our conscious mind is probably where you want the majority of your most important decisions to be made, your conscious mind doesn't have anywhere near the same processing capacity as your subconscious mind. Don't make purely instinctive decisions, you know, sense check your moves. But if a move feels wrong, even if it's logical, if it doesn't feel right to you, don't be afraid of acting on your gut and going on, on that basis. And there's a really good example in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, of a man who was watching tennis, you know, was a big tennis fan, was going around watching uh, all sorts of tournaments. And he develops over time an instinct to say, that's going to be a false serve whenever someone was serving for the first time. 
and it, it kind of it was one of those things that was completely intangible but he eventually ended up being employed by one of the tennis players and he introduced he kind of introduced loads of ways to kind of help her with her body shape and things like that so suddenly you know what he identified in his gut or at least you know in his kind of mental perception that kind of first sort of instinct he was able to use that that kind of observation to suggest improvement and uh, that causes the idea that your understanding on things on instinct can sometimes be a very accurate summary of a situation and you think about kind of every evolution psychology and the ways in which we develop these heuristics and biases to kind of help us basically survive it's basically like a weird sort of random offshoot of that so there definitely is a space for gut feeling and i think that that nicely as you said ross links into that idea of flipping a coin and having that sort of initial instinct you know what do i want to do here you know, we shouldn't be too dismissive of that. That is us kind of using those same instincts, make sure we have a good outcome. So we shouldn't denigrate gut feeling is all I'm saying. People say that you only make like a couple of FPL decisions a week, captaincy, benching, transfers. That's a very overarching look at it. I think you probably make somewhere between 100 and 200 micro decisions every single week. It's do I bring in this play? You've probably got a list of 20 players to choose from. Then you've got to decide your benching order, but you're choosing based on various metrics. Then you choose, do you trust eye test? Which piece of content do you watch? You're making hundreds of decisions a week. You can't, as Simon said, you're not consciously processing all of that. It's impossible. We only have a limited capability to do so. But you don't just forget all of these different experiences. You don't just do something in game week one and forget the 200 things that you had to think about. So these experiences and these memories go somewhere and you can't always consciously process them. So that's where we think that maybe gut feeling manifests itself as some of these past micro decisions that we've had in the past. And it displays itself as an instinct or some sort of intuition. But I definitely think there's a place for it in FPL. I don't think you want to be an individual that over relies on emotion or your gut feeling. I guess that kind of links nicely into availability or availability heuristic, which is the final thing we'll speak about when it comes to early season. I think this is the mental shortcut many of us take when considering an issue whereby we remember the most salient most impactful thing about that issue to make judgments this is why political strategists for example will boil things down to something very very simple three key words something like that which is the party's message at election time or the way in which they want to get their message across political strategists know that they need a hook which cuts through fpl wise we see availability comes to the fore throughout the season a player suddenly becomes hugely desirable because of a salient fact Fixtures are very good for this player. And suddenly he becomes flavor of the month because all kinds of arguments have framed surrounding some fairly modest stats. But because he's front of mind, many will jump in and buy this player because they are a salient example. And in early season, availability is really clear in the transfer market. Why is a player being bought should be something which, in terms of engaged managers at least, should be borne in mind. Normally it's because he's done a goal or done some points. And it's up to us to think, is that sustainable? There are a couple of salient examples for me, again, showing availability heuristic. The first one was when we, Arsenal, beat Leicester 4-3 at home in game week one. I think it was 2017. Granit Xhaka got two assists from a corner and he became the first riser in FPL that year. And my sister I said, don't buy this guy, waste the money. And she texted me. Uh, There's a reason it stuck in my mind. She WhatsApp me being like, oh, if I had Jacka, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And I was thinking, well, no, it was good advice. But obviously at the time, you know, she was thinking, well, he's just got two assists, so I'd have you know, double digits and points here. And also there's something called the Yannick Vestergaard effect. 
when he was at Southampton, I think it was three years in a row, the guy always scored a header at some point in the first few weeks of the season and it always seemed to rise 0.3 million or so just because he did a goal and then people were thinking, oh yeah, you know, it's a defender who's got a 10-point haul. God, this guy's going to be worth it. Simon, like availability heuristic is something which definitely impacts a lot of managers, isn't it, in early season. What's your view on it? I think so much of it is, is how little information we feel is, is salient early on in the season because yeah, we're quite liberal with what we call form early on in the season. It's like you say, it could just be a goal. It could be a goal in game week one and that you know immediately is formed. One of the key problems with availability heuristic is, is that you can't make reliable judgments based on you know, small amounts of, uh, of data. But the longer that that form continues, the better an indicator it becomes. Long-term listeners uh, to, to this series will know that, you know, I'm quite distrustful of form or at least goal-scoring form. And, you know, I've got my, my empirical reasons uh, for, for feeling that way. But eventually, form just becomes being a good player. You know, like Salah is a good player, right? Form is almost irrelevant to Mohamed Salah. And so, you know, on, on a long enough timeline availability is so plentiful that you know you don't actually have to kind of determine whether or not a player is informed that they're, they're just a good player so i think early on in the season don't discount the largest piece of information we have which is mm. um, past performance uh, as opposed to uh, you know game week one's performance yeah, availability maybe oh we've got early doors right ross yeah and i think simon does a good point of this every time we talk about biases and a lot of the time these are useful and availability heuristic in a lot of situations is actually quite useful it's one of the reasons it's developed as a cognitive bias you can call it a bias often it's quite useful to have that information that we can quickly access and heuristics by the very definition a heuristic is a mental shortcut so these can be really useful but they can also be detrimental when we're trying to make accurate decisions and I should just say this doesn't just apply early on in the season it applies across the entirety of the season and one for me that I always try and catch myself with is I look to certain players when I need certain things rather than looking at the form that player's in or looking at their underlying data. So whenever I like need a haul in a double game week, for some reason, I always look at Raheem Sterling. And I'm like, it doesn't matter how good Raheem Sterling's performing. It doesn't matter what his underlying statistics look like. If I need a haul, I'll go, oh, I want Mares or Sterling. Because in the, the thing that's very re- readily available to me is that they score 12, 15 points quite easily. What I should be looking at is what's their expected data been like in recent weeks? Are they going to start both games? These are the things I should be thinking rather than I need a haul. Let me let me think of a player that I know in the past has got those double digit hauls. So just be careful. If something comes to your mind really quickly, <laughs> it might be the availability heuristic. and It might be that you're using a mental shortcut rather than actually making a, a logical decision. Definitely. All right. Well, there's early season for you. To summarize, FOMO will always be there, but often it's a sign that maybe a player should come in. It's a way our brains develop to basically say, hey, you know what? This player is going to be quite good for you. And that is based off lots of evolution psychology about protecting you as a person. So don't ignore those instincts and don't try to be too clever. And that links nicely into gut feeling. Using gut feeling to cut ambiguity may mean that you're at peace with the decision we've made. But as Simon said, you can experiment at the start of the season. And as Ross said, reducing gut feeling might be a good idea overall. But in 50-50 situations, for example, when you've narrowed it down to just two choices, it may work well as a kicker. And as a literal coin flip as well may help you in terms of micro expressions, which can tell you which way you really feel was the way to go. And in terms of availability heuristic, we have little information, which is salient. Form will be key for many people, but that form in loads of inverted commas is not based on much at all. 
Throughout the season, though, when you get more information, availability heuristic can actually impair our ability to make reliable judgments because we've got more data, but we're still lurching towards the individuals that, for example, Ross mentioned with Raheem Sterling, Riyad Mahrez. Availability heuristic may be all we've got early doors, but it's a bloody useful thing at the time. But maybe we should retcon beyond the short term when we've got more time, more data later on in the year. Again, hopefully that was fairly useful in terms of thinking about early season. It's just over the horizon in terms of where we are now in terms of the summer, but it's definitely something that's worth remembering. Let's take a break there and we'll think about festive fixture pileups and busy periods just after this. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? So we're back and it's, it's Christmas. Although this year it's different, of course, with the World Cup. And traditionally, these things come thick and fast in the pitch of the pile-up with normally you know, three game weeks in the course of a week or something like that. There's Boxing Day, there's the 28th, there's New Year's Day, and that creates all sorts of headaches for managers. Last season, of course, was the biggest headache of all with COVID also running rampant over FPL managers' plans. But hey, this part of the campaign is almost always super busy and we're going to talk about it despite it not happening this season, so 2022-23. But a lot of the things we speak about here are relatable to the course of the season anyway. So something that it can be magnified around this time of year, but equally is really important throughout the course of the season. I think, Ross, let's start with illusion of control. And this is probably one of my favourite psychological impacts and something that you speak about brilliantly in your book and you've spoken about in the past a lot too something i think managers universally tap into don't they seemingly uncontrollable events we want to feel don't we that we've got some element of reins over it so illusion of control is something that is is massive in fpl but it's massive in everyday life as human beings as individuals we want to have as much control over things as possible obviously we have these people that we term control freaks but any individual likes to feel like they have control over their life and the decisions that they make. And more importantly, and more worryingly, we try to often control outcomes, which are largely out of our control. And interestingly with FPL, when you truly sit down and think about it, it's an absolutely remarkable game in that we really don't have control over very much at all. We have control over the decisions we make with respect to transfers, captaincy, benching, etc. But as soon as you have submitted your team, you have absolutely no influence over the result of what your team's going to do. You can put together the most perfect team every single week. But if that team doesn't perform on the pitch, which you have absolutely no way of affecting, then it's very, very unlikely that you're going to do well. So it's a strange game in that we spend so much time thinking about it, but we ultimately have very little control over the outcome. So for me, illusion of control is more than just trying to improve the way you make decisions. It's trying to reduce the negative emotions. Mm. So during my bachelor's degree, I had a few friends that used to struggle quite a lot with, you know, once you've submitted the exam, stressing about what grades you're going to get, stressing about whether you're going to get through to next year. Yeah. And I, I had a little quote that I used to read out to my friends, genuinely had it on my phone. So I used to say, you get the grade the moment you put your pen down in the exam hall. So as soon as you've put the pen down, you've already got your grade because you can't influence anything beyond that. You've already oh. written the best you can. So say there was no use in stressing after you finished writing as you now have absolutely no control, no ability to influence the outcome. You've got your grade as soon as you finished writing. You just unfortunately have to wait a few months to get it. And the same goes for FPL. And so I've adapted that sort of mantra that I had during my bachelor's for FPL. And wow. it is now you get your game week score the moment you submit your team prior to the deadline. So there is absolutely no use in stressing. As soon as that error message comes up, 
you've got your game week score. You've just got to wait two or three days to actually receive that score, but you can't influence anything. Some fantasy football games, you can make choices throughout the week. FPL, unless they make some drastic changes this year, after you've submitted, that's it. You can't really do much after. Illusion of control site. I mean, I suppose this is something that effective ownership is really tethered to, isn't it? Trying to control the uncontrollable is where looking at your effective ownership during the game week, as Ross said, deadline, you're done. Effective ownership at least is kind of a way that you can kind of say, you know what, all right, this player doing nothing, this player doing something. I can see where things are happening, but it definitely feels quite a passive thing, doesn't it? Like you haven't really got that element of being able to step in and make a change. Lack of control is a really stressful thing. I really like that idea that Ross just described, especially if you're, if you're someone who's prone to sort of magical thinking, if you're the kind of person who has to sort of sit in a particular seat when you're watching a football match or wear a certain pair of socks or, you know, any of those sort of things. I, I think it can be really, really useful. And sometimes you just have to sort of accept that at a certain point, your control over a situation, you know, has expired and you, you just got to enjoy whatever <laughs> comes next if you can. I think last season was particularly chaotic at points and over Christmas and towards the end when, you know, we were getting double game weeks coming out of nowhere over Christmas when we were having cancellations coming out out of nowhere. Um, And what I learned from that period is that if you lean into the chaos too much, you become a victim to it. You do have to accept that you can't control it entirely, but there are certain things that you can do. And I I think when matches were being cancelled very late on, it quite quickly emerged that the best strategy was to leave it until the latest possible moment to make your transfers. And, and as soon as people started to do that, then you know we started to feel that we had a bit more control over the situations. And also it means that you can kind of edit out the noise a, a little bit. So you're not just constantly looking at information to see whether you know the Arsenal match is going to go ahead or what the weather is like in Stoke or you know or whatever. <laughs> I don't know I said Stoke, they weren't even the Premier League, were they? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think don't give in to chaos, but don't expect to control it um, 100% either. Put what structures you can in, in place, you know, to minimise the uncertainty, but accept that everyone is in the same boat. And also, if you keep your head, then it can be an opportunity as well. One of the quotes I like from Game of Thrones, um, which I think is a little finger quote, is uh, is that chaos is a ladder. And, you know, sure enough, you know, sometimes you need things to be mixed up, especially when this game can fall into a very template oriented formulaic system. And sometimes you need a bit of chaos injected into it. And if you're ready to take advantage of it, then it can really benefit you. I think what's interesting is, especially during the last period with COVID, the pandemic really disrupting things, is how we mentioned the earlier survivorship bias has definitely become really important in terms of FPL. And it's just one to throw in here because it's something that I noticed last season in particular. With all the randomness and the high variant situations, there are always winners and losers. And again, that probably sounds a little bit like a Game of Thrones thing. If you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. And in particular, I think I saw a hint of survivorship bias across FPL Twitter a little bit around Christmas. Survivorship bias is a tendency to focus on people or things who have come through a selection process and disregard those who have not. So examples of survivorship bias are notable in a wide range of fields, particularly in the business world. So you know, students in business school can recall how unicorn startups are applauded throughout the classroom, given as an example of things that students should strive for. They're an archetypal symbol of success. But Forbes reports that 90% of startups fail. And even though entire degrees are dedicated to entrepreneurship, 
dozens of students say they will one day found a startup, the majority of those things will fail. But because of survivorship bias, they all think, you know, I'm going to be that one person who gets through this criteria. Lauded is a great example of success when, in fact, failure is something which is more prominent. And I think that, you know, in FPL around last year, loads of people who had done well and they were unable or unwilling to recognize the variant, the difference between basically getting lucky. We all know that variance is a fancy word for luck in FPL and the sense of skill. And, you know, reflexively too, there was a feeling that, you know, these people had it solved. In any difficult 50-50, there's winners or losers and survivorship bias, especially as FPL, as you mentioned ages ago, Ross, becomes more mainstream, more herd-led. I think that's, that could be something to keep an eye on, especially during a fixture pile-up like at Christmas or throughout the course of the season. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, you, you end up with a tendency to, to start to think that they've found that magic formula when in fact that we're looking at outcome bias here. It could have just been that they had a very lucky week. And what you'll find, and just to reinforce it, is that the winners are the ones that are left on Twitter at the end of the night. So if on a, on a Sunday night, the whole weekend's gone, no one's going to be sat on there with the, when they've scored 24 points and they've got a 400% red arrow. They're just not going to, unless they've got a really thick skin. It's going to be all of those that are celebrating their wins. So no matter what time of the season, no matter what day of the week, when you scroll through Twitter, it's going to be people showing off. <laughs> That's why we love social media. The whole point of social media is it really is one big opportunity to try and show off your achievements, which is the great thing about it. But in FPL, it just results in you constantly making those social comparisons that just aren't healthy. And anyone that follows me knows I'm very passionate about mental health and the social comparisons that you're forced to make on social media and specifically in the FPL community, enhanced by survivorship bias because you're making social comparisons no matter, again, what time of the week, you're always making social comparisons to the people that are doing the best. You're always going to feel inadequate. No matter what your game week rank is, unless you're literally winning FPL, you're always going to feel inadequate because you're comparing to those that have survived and that have got the best score. So, I mean, a bit of advice to everyone, try and post the highs and the lows, try and be active and, and part of the community when you're doing well and when you're not doing well. And, and I'm not forcing anyone. And you, you, you definitely don't have to do this as content creators. We like to, but Try and own your decisions and try and explain your thought process. And genuinely, it can literally save people and make them feel so much better when you post a bad score. You won't know this unless you're someone that suffers with, with poor mental health. But if you are someone that does, you might realize that it can actually be quite difficult to like log off of social media. That would be our advice is just get off of social media. Don't look through all of the good scores when you've had a bad week. But sometimes you can't help it. It's a bit of that FOMO. It's almost a bit like masochistic. You, you want that pain of realizing that you've had a poor week. If you post a bad score and someone sees that and they've had a bad score, it can it can make the world a difference for them. So um, don't want to get too much into the mental health side of things, but definitely specifically at Christmas, I think this is when we see a bit of a drop off in certain managers and we see those that are doing really well because they've done it for a few weeks now and they're getting into the midpoint of the season. Survivorship bias really, really starts to kick in. And you'll see those managers that are left on Twitter are always the ones that are doing the very best. When you focus that internally as well, it's, it's very important. Believing your own hype, for example, in FPL is, is a very dangerous thing. You, you know, if you, if you think that you've solved it, um, you'll, you'll find out very quickly that, that you haven't. I sort of like to think that we're moving a little bit beyond that, that there's a bit more of a kind of recognition of the, the luck factor involved in, in FPL. Part of that comes from you know, the content creators. Part of it comes from the communities. And, and like Ross was saying, you know, people celebrating their failures as much as their achievements, you know, removing the stigma from it a, a little bit. But I think one of the things that if you, if you pay attention to the community, there's a lot of content creators uh, within FPL who are very, very good um, at FPL, but all of them have had bad seasons. And 
really a lot of the time it's not the fact that they're that they're good at FPL that makes them interesting to to listen to. I mean, like yeah, I, for example, you know, we could all be rubbish at FPL, and I still think that what we're talking about right now would be interesting to people. I still think that it would have value and hopefully help make people better at FPL, which is, you know is obviously the whole kind of point of uh, of this thing. So, I think you know focusing too much uncritically on you know people's ranks you know where they currently are in the league where they've been in the in the history you know, how many top 10,000 finishes they've had yeah I, I think it's a it's a bit of a, a misnomer um I think more and more there's a focus on the, uh, the value of ideas and the merit of, of you know different approaches and the, the things that you can take from the real world and apply it to uh, FPL the different expertises that, that people have and I think that's very much where kind of content creation is going and I hope that you know, like you're saying that that has a positive effect. That's music's my ears, Simon, because <laughs> as, as somebody who has sat with uh, a little terrible finishes since I started content creation, I'm, I'm guessing it's the value of my ideas, uh, which is why you're all listening to this. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, I definitely um, think there's definitely something in that. It's not just an FPL. Like the, the best coaches aren't always the best footballers. Like you can have coaches that really can't kick a football. If you can coach someone's decision making and, and highlight some possible strategies, as long as you have a good understanding of FPL, I think that's the key thing with content creation. I think that's the key thing on social media as well. And I think what Simon said there is perfect. This top 10K stigma and this stigma that you can only speak a certain way if you have a certain rank. I understand the logic that you want to listen to people that have got that experience of, of doing very well, because if they've not done well themselves, clearly their advice doesn't have value, et cetera. But at the end of the day, maybe they don't follow their own advice, but they can still give fantastic advice. But yeah, survivorship bias, going back to the original point, is definitely something to keep an eye on and just, just realize that if it feels like the entirety of Twitter are doing well and the entirety of Twitter own a certain player, it's probably not the case. And it's probably just a little bit of that survivorship. Yeah, th- those who have survived are those who, as you said earlier, are still on Twitter. I think the final thing to mention here very, very quickly is action bias, which is the preference to do something rather than nothing, which can lead us down many an icy path. I mean, I've fallen praise this a few times, this preference to do something rather than nothing. I don't know, I think maybe just because... Obviously, from my position as an FPL content creator, it's almost a little bit unsexy to do nothing. You know, people look at you and think, oh, you know, what's he doing this week? And you're kind of you know, looking at pulling out that sort of, you know, massive differential who goes off and scores 15 points or something. But often that leads to something, I think I called it overmanagement in the past. And the power of doing nothing is something that we probably shouldn't understate. Last year was a bit different, of course, with the pandemic and suddenly doing a minus four was the new rolling free transfer. And I remember uh, Watkins, Ollie Watkins is a good example last season. And I brought him in, in game week 18, I think it was because he had a few good fixtures and I missed the Norwich hall and he didn't play because of a last minute cancellation, but I made that move foolishly before the deadline thinking I need to do something to sort my game week out. And maybe it's that illusion of control again, Ross, but like, you know, it's, it's a good example there where often you kind of think, I feel like I need to do something here to sort me out rather than valuing the fact that I've done nothing. I've got two free transfers and next week I can then reassess and make a potentially better decision. And action bias, Ross, do you think that's something that impacts managers, especially in terms of the FPL churn, where content creators every week have to be saying something, highlighting someone? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I genuinely believe this is excellent advice for every aspect of your life. Some of the best philosophers, if anyone studied philosophy and they're listening to this, various top philosophers have all said doing nothing is an art form. And sometimes just waiting and being patient can be just as important as making a move. And, and in FPL, I think the issue we've got is that we misidentify not making a decision or not doing something. That is still a decision in and of itself. To decide not to bring a player in, to decide not to captain a differential, just because you're not making an active decision, that is almost like a passive form of decision-making still. So sometimes being patient, not making a decision and sticking with a player a little bit longer and not always over-tinkering and overthinking with your team, that is still decision-making in of itself and it is still a sign of a top manager. So don't feel like if, if everything's going well, don't feel like you've got to mix it up and you've got to change things. And, and equally, even if your team's not doing well, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to change. Sometimes you'll have a, a wildcard team, you'll wildcard that team in and it'll be absolutely shocking for two weeks. And the four or five weeks that follow that, that exact team, get you green arrow after green arrow after green arrow. Sometimes that, that team is perfect. It just needs a couple of weeks to sort of settle in and those players do as well. So yeah, it's an, it's an art form, knowing when to move off, when to wait. We, we move into sort of the realms of plan continuation bias and, and all of these lovely things as well. But it comes down to trying to find that balance for you. Mm. When do you move off of an idea? When do you start making those active moves? And when do you sometimes just be patient? And again, this is not a one size fits all. There's not a, a specific formula for this. It comes down to being as reflective as possible as a manager and working out what works well for you with respect to how patient or aggressive to be with your decision making. Yeah, I think I think the value of doing nothing is very explicit in FPL when it comes to transfers, for example. Like having two free transfers is, isn't twice as good as having one free transfer. It's exponentially better than having uh, one free transfer because yeah, it opens up so many more possibilities. But it is it is very difficult to do nothing, and yeah, we're all very prone to knee jerk signings. Um, yeah, especially if you've been really let down by a, a player, you just want to you know take action, get him out of your team. You, you want to feel like you've solved the problem. You know, on Sunday night you'll be much better positioned to solve the problem if you leave it until the following Friday uh, or, you know, at least closer to the, the deadline um, because you'll have more information, uh, you know, you'll uh, have more of that scope. And, uh, it, but it's, it's very difficult. And, and also a lot of the time you want to be seen to be taking action. I mean, the favourite study yeah. in, in this is... Um, there's a study of goalkeepers um, facing penalties and they looked at thousands of penalties and they found that the vast majority, something like 60, 70% uh, of penalties went down the middle third of the goal. And so the goalkeeper's chances of saving it would have been much, much better if they just stayed in the middle. But goalkeepers are much more prone to diving left or right uh, because they, they want to be seen to be doing something. And even when they were made aware of this, that statistically they'd be better off by just standing in the middle of the goal, they still dive left or right because they would rather the concede the goal than be seen to do nothing and so that's a sort of contextual example i think of you know how difficult it can be even when you've got all the data and all the rationale in front of you to actually do nothing you know it's what defines us as a species really is uh, you know it's what makes humans so successful and it, you know among us <laughs> yeah. humans what makes us successful is that ability to kind of delay gratification um, you know to bide your time until things are in place to, to sort of maximize your, your gain from uh, from the action yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting point as well, the whole thing about delay gratification. We'll come on to that in just a bit, that's for sure. Um, but I think there's, there's definitely something in that point about doing not very much on FPL until Friday. I mean, we've all been there on the Sunday, just being like, I'm at 0.0, I need to make this move now, or I can't buy this player in. But what's really interesting is Fabio Borges, a manager we all respect and know, he said on Pentacle Scout recently in an interview that he doesn't really look at that. He doesn't really subscribe to the herd mentality, which occurs on that end of game week sort of frenzy. 
that he'll delay it, wait until Friday, not care about what, what it looks like on Sunday or whatever, but on the Friday, he'll look at where he is, what he can possibly do, and how he can then manage his team better. I think that's definitely an interesting thing as well to bear in mind there. And to summarise this section, illusion of control is really important. We're just trying to have a sense of control where we can effectively, even the situation has become more and more chaotic. As Simon says, you can try to lean into the chaos, but it can often be really difficult to do so. And I like what Ross said, that although it's really scary that your game week is done the moment the deadline passes, there's a bit of a Schrodinger's cat thing about that. But ultimately, any control you try to exert over it, be it refreshing live FPL, making transfers early they're not going to impact how you've done that week so using that knowledge you can put structures in place to try to help you cope better mentally emotionally as we said with survivorship bias making social comparisons through the prism of fpl twitter you need to be really mindful of that as simon said never believe in your own hype if you're doing well and you know if you're doing badly as ross said as well own that like luck is becoming more and more clear in terms of how it comes out and removing that stigma around perceived failure is very clearly the best place to go forward, it sounds like to me. You don't want that kind of feeling that you're doing crap, therefore I'm, a, I'm an awful manager. It's more of a case of saying, I've done this week hasn't worked out as I planned. I'm going to log off socials now. I'm going to do something else. And a lot of the time that is the core advice for anybody and sometimes frankly being patient is better doing nothing is very important there's huge power in that right I'll take a break there and move on to a look at the business end of the season double game week and chip season when things get really really interesting who got the assist who got the assist so we're back and we're looking at the end of the season now the business end double game week and chip season I mean Basically, we're all led by Ben Crellin here. Let's face it. If he kind of sounds the klaxon to say, double game weeks are coming. Everybody get on board. We all begin to get really, really excited, don't we? And it's getting towards the end of the season. The end is in sight. It's around the time where the 20s give way to the 30s in terms of the game week number. And more than likely, you'll have a few, if not all of your chips left to deploy. And you'll have a fairly decent idea of what you need to do, what plans you need to make, and get to where you need to be or want to be at the end of the season. And there are loads and loads and loads of psychological behavioural biases at play here. And I think the first one to mention really quickly is hyperbolic discounting, which is the idea that without data, we should lean situations which favour the here and now over the long term. I think hyperbolic discounting is something that we can look at mainly through one key example, which we'll see throughout everyday life. The classic example is, You've got two deals for a new phone. One, you pay £1,000 up front. Two, you pay £62.50 per month over the next two years. Most people look at that and think, oh, God, yeah, I'm going to postpone the pain of paying that £1,000 up front and opt for the second choice. But rationally, actually, it's best to pay the £1,000 up front because 62.5 times 24, two years and months equals £1,400. So you're losing... £500 by not taking the pain in one hit. In FBL, though, it's definitely one of those things that impacts a lot of managers' behaviour, a lot of decision-making, because often having that kind of initial pain versus the kind of long-term benefits can mean that managers make all sorts of different decisions. 
Yeah, it's such an interesting one in FPL because a lot of the research into temporal or hyperbolic discounting, it, almost all of it, the end outcome is always known. And that goes for every form of research, really, where there's been some sort of long-term or delayed gratification, even the classic marshmallow experiment, where if you don't know what the classic experiment is, by the way, if you're listening to this and you've got kids, you can definitely try this. I think the age of the kid is, I think it's around four years old. They essentially present the child with a marshmallow and they ask the child to sit with that marshmallow for, I think it's about five minutes. And they say, if you can sit with that marshmallow for five minutes and not eat the marshmallow, after the time's up, we'll actually give you two. So it's 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 almost similar to what Tom's saying there. In this case, you you would really want to delay there and you would, you would place the value on sort of the long-term rather than the short-term. But a lot of the children, because they don't have that long-term gratification, they'll favor the one marshmallow and they'll eat it when the experimenter leaves the room. The issue that we've got in FPL with all of this, whether it be short term, long term, whatever we're focusing on, is that almost always the long term is very unknown. So we might save a chip for a rainy day or we might hold on to the player in the hope that in future game weeks they'll improve. It's a lot of hoping, betting and hypothesizing. There's no guarantee. So, again, going back to Tom's example, we know for certain that the price is going to be a thousand pound up front or overall something like one thousand four hundred pounds, sixty one pound a month. That's very, very known to us. It's a specific number. With FPL, because we're looking at double game weeks, which we don't always know when they're going to happen, we're looking at trying to predict how 11 players are going to perform on a pitch against another 11 players, how well that team will perform with respect to momentum, injuries, different players, transfers. It can be sometimes worthwhile just cashing in early and just saying, you know what, I'm going to play my chip now. I'm going to do this now. And I'm not going to worry about the long term. And often, and again, if you listen to this, I'm sure you've had this in the past with FPL, sometimes we can hold a chip or hold something out for a later date and we say, oh, I'm sure in the future there'll be a better opportunity to do that. And sometimes that better opportunity just never arises. So it's a very tricky one in FPL because of that uncertainty element that I don't think is the case with a lot of other things that we consider hyperbolic discounting with. A lot of people are going to plant their teams, maybe not consciously, but they're, they're going to look at their players and they're going to think, right, this is a player that you know could last me the whole season. This is a season keeper. And I think the reality is that the best solution is somewhere in the middle and that you, you kind of look at the next four to six weeks uh, and you build around that. And when that's over, you know, you build for the next four to six weeks and, and so on until you're, you're at the end of the, the season. When we're talking about the chips, there's an element of, um, of getting back into kind of delayed gratification. And, uh, you know, this idea that if you leave something longer, then it, the benefit of it might be amplified. And I actually think that that really is the case with the, the, the chips. I mean, there were certain chips that I could have played earlier on in the season. I, I saved almost all of mine until the, the end of the season. There were certainly game weeks when I thought oh, I wish I'd use my bench boost then and I'd been considering oh, yeah. it and, and, and not done Absolutely. it <laughs> um, but equally I think if you you know as a rule leave these things until the, the end of the season the effect that they can have is so much more amplified uh, when you've got double game weeks um, coming into uh, you know effect I you know I think that there's a there's a real almost beyond debate value <laughs> now it's going to be interesting to see what they do with the chips and maybe that will mix yeah. it mix it up but I, I, I think that it, it's almost inarguable now that even though you could have a good outcome by using your chips early on in probability terms you'd have to be so much luckier to outdo the average of somebody who you know saves them until you know it's, it's a kind of double game week 
frenzy season. It's, it's a real balancing act because prioritizing the short term over the long term yeah, can be detrimental. Um, prioritizing the long term uh, at the expense of the short term can be detrimental. You know, you have to sort of take it on a case by case basis where you can try and meet it in the middle, you know, work for a manageable period of time. But I think that there are some cases where, you know, delaying that gratification, you, you know, keeping your finger off the trigger does actually amplify your returns. I, I guess, though, that we saw this year, obviously knowing the power of delayed gratification, this rub up against something very big, which is sunk cost fallacy that we speak about an awful lot. And especially when it comes to double game week planning and when you use your chips and things like that, because Ross in his book speaks very eloquently about the fact you need to be a dynamic manager at times. And I mean, Ross will speak about what he did last year um, in a minute. But I think some cost fallacy is really important in terms of how you think about your chips and how you're going to play them. Just because, I mean, this is the idea that once you spend a lot of time, effort or money on a plan, you won't change your mind on it even if better options present themselves. A good example of this is Martin Coleman's experiment, uh, which was done back in 2010s. A set of students were given the following scenario. They were told to imagine they'd sign up for a professional skills course that had a 75% pass rate, but they spent $100 to get involved with this. And they were then told that someone who sourced a free course with an 85% pass rate with the same subject matter, the same qualification, they had to choose one or the other due to scheduling. Which one did the students pick is the question. And overwhelmingly, the decision was to stick with the 75% course because they paid, that was the sunk cost, despite the logical slash rational choice being to attend the 85% course. And Ross, I guess we see sunk costs manifest itself all the time in FPL from buying a player despite another one comes prominence, actually being the better option because you spent a lot of time thinking about which one you would buy. And for content creators, you spent a lot of time hyping a particular guy. I mean, you've been in a situation, haven't you, where you're maybe looking at one player and suddenly it's quite hard to pull back from what you've been saying about this guy. Is that something that affects you still now? Yeah, for me, this is the, the number one area that I've really struggled to improve and, and probably will continue to struggle. And there, there is just so much psychology in here. So it's not just sunk cost fallacy, it's plan continuation bias, it's anchoring bias, it's primacy effect. I mean, there's probably about 10 cognitive biases coming into play here that when you create a plan or create a course of action that you think that you think would be the ideal one here, you, you sort of feel like you've got to stick to it. You feel like you're almost betraying yourself if you go against it. And I, I speak about on various occasions here. And again, there is no magic formula, unfortunately. I sound like a bit of a fraud here, not giving many answers. But it's this balance between you need to be a, a dynamic and adaptive manager, which I talk about all the time. You need to try and react as well as possible to new information rising. But you also need to not be an overly reactive manager. And someone that constantly reacts to all of the incoming information is going to knee jerk. They're going to take too many hits. They're going to be quite emotional. There is a balance somewhere. There is a perfect line somewhere there where you're adaptive and dynamic, but you're not reactive. And with respect to, to what you were saying there about almost you feel like you've got to follow through with a plan because you verbalized it and because you've said you're going to do it. Number one, no one cares. Go against what you said. If you said you're going to do something, but you suddenly think it's not the correct thing to do. Do you know what? I think I actually respect people more when they do that. And I think my audience last year, I did it on various occasions. I'd say, I'm really sorry that at the start of the week, I said I wanted to do that. I've actually changed my mind. And I think people will appreciate that honesty more so. The other way is just stop verbalizing everything that you think and stop tweeting everything that you think. If, if you're someone that once you tweet something or once you say something, you have to follow through that plan, stop saying it and stop tweeting it and stop wait until you've really got a good idea <laughs> and you're happy with that and then go and do that. But people change their mind. 
as long as it's not on something immoral or anything like that with FPL, who cares? Just try and be as adaptive as possible. But like I said, don't go too far the other way. And I, I did this last season because I've talked about all of this psychology so much. My number one tip for myself was to avoid playing continuation bias, avoid coming up with a plan and sticking with it regardless and try and be more adaptive. And what I ended up doing at stages is being too reactive which is something new. I'd just ditch my original plan and create a new plan. So there is a fine line somewhere there. Unfortunately, I don't have the answer. Uh, maybe Simon does. Yeah, of course. No, no, not really. I'll, I'll, give, it, I'll give it a crack. Though. It is very challenging because you're, you're realising losses. Yeah, you can make a mistake, but it's not really a mistake until you, you, know, you accept that it was a mistake. And whether that's um, that you bought some, I don't know, you made a bad investment. Uh, you know, it's gone down, but maybe it'll come back up. But if you sell it before that happens, you realise that loss, um, then, you know, then it's real. It's no longer a paper loss. And, and we do that a lot in FPL. We do that with uh, players that we hold on for too long, you know, to justify the decision that, you know, we maybe made uh, a while ago. And and I think, yeah, yeah ad- admitting that you got it wrong is, is very difficult. But uh, I've, I've seen various different approaches to this. All right, if you look at a player and you brought them in and they're underperforming now, ask yourself, looking at this player now, would you bring them in? And if the answer is no, then there's no reason to hold on to them. It's maybe a bit of an oversimplification, but it it does reframe the the question in your mind a little bit, which I I think can be quite useful. Um, Another approach is um, the three strikes rule. So you can bring in a player and they can underperform you know, one game week and they can underperform two game weeks. But if they underperform three game weeks and there's not even a sign of improvement, uh, then that's the, the time to get rid of them. That appeals to me quite a bit, I think, because we've got a tendency to give up on our decisions a little bit early. You take in that, that sort of more objective criteria and, and apply it to and say, okay, you know, three bad game weeks and, and you're gone. And, and three bad game weeks actually probably isn't going to be fatal to your, to your season, uh, especially no. not with just one player. Holding that same player on for 10 game weeks probably will. So, yeah, I, I quite like the uh, three strike rule. I remember um, Josh Ball, who won FPL a couple of years ago, he always said, you know, make variants work for you. Uh, maybe that three strikes rule is a nice sort of, uh, we, all, we all love the rule of three, don't we? But in terms of you know, risk aversion, for example, I think that works really well because you're able to temper that risk, aren't you, Ross? And able to kind of have parameters which judge whether this has been a success. Yeah, the issue we've got is that we then move into gambler's fallacy, which is where we've brought in a player and then they they don't do well. And we're like, well, we thought they were going to do well. Surely they're going to do well soon. And that, I, I quite like the idea of a three strike rule in that you're putting a limit on it because I, <laughs> I if anyone followed my season last year, I had this with Ilkay Gundogan. I had him for about 12 game weeks and it's the underlying stats look good. I'm sure he'll perform well. Oh, he didn't start that match. Oh, I'm sure Pep will start him in the next game. Oh, he didn't start in that game. I reckon Pep will start him in the next one. And I think he only started one or two in the 12 games that I owned Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Yeah, so you need a cutoff point and and you don't want to go too far. You'll realise when you're listening to this that there are a lot of competing biases and that if you try and avoid one, you'll end up falling into the trap of the other and, and you need to try not to go too far either way. So if we've set a cognitive bias that you're like, yeah, I definitely fall victim to that. I'm going to try and improve or change or acknowledge that. Just be careful not to go too far the other way because you're probably just going to fall into the lap of another one, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, gambler's fallacy is, is massive, isn't it? I mean, to explain gambler's fallacy for a second, that's the idea that finding kind of a sense of an inherent fairness in, in life, and that's not how things work. I was definitely, Ross, similar to you last year with Harry Kane over not owning Son. Like, I thought that every week I was just like, you know, Kane's going to, this week, 
absolutely explode and Son's going to be left in the dustbin. You know, Kane's going to be the guy who's going to be, you know, propelling me to a great outcome. And yeah, week it, after it, week after week, I was able to look at the expected data and back to confirmation bias, able to say, you know, it was looking like Kane's going to be the guy this week. So, you know, forget about Son, this can be the one. And I can I couldn't buy Son for whatever reason. I, I, I it was taking a few hits to get there. And yeah, you know, it's one of those things that kind of feels a really nice comfort blanket, but equally it's something that we need to keep in mind of, isn't it? It's a bit of narrative bias in there as well, which we we tell ourselves stories to try and make ourselves feel better. Kane's a brilliant player. Kane will end up scoring. This is the story <laughs> that we've built in our mind and and that Son can't continue this. And, and we build these narratives and stories in our head that satisfy the decisions we want to make, which goes back to confirmation bias once again. So basically, we're very faulty human beings that are constantly falling victim to about 100 cognitive biases at once. We do sort of create these, these sort of absurd situations where we assume that Harry Kane, for example, is going to score more often than he's going to blank. Right? So if he blanks one game week, then using that rationale, you think, OK, well, that makes him more likely to the score the next week but if he blanks the next week that makes you even more certain that he's going to score in the the third week because yeah we expect these results to be kind of evenly distributed across the season whereas Ronaldo is a really good example you know last season he started off on fire he did quite well towards the end and and did almost nothing for about three or four months in the in the middle of the season and the, the only thing definite about that was that whether he scored or not, I had no influence on whether or not he was more likely to score or not score in the in the in the next week. Um, but you know, such is our uh, our perceptions of probability. Definitely, it's, it's it's just amazing the tricks almost that our brains play on us. I think just to end as well, we should look at the PKM rule just because at this point, Lucy tacking us on as the back of the chip season. But the PKM rule is great because. We remember the season in particular ways, and that kind of links again to availability heuristic and saliency. But uh, the PCAM rule is one of my favorite impacts in terms of how the brain works, because I understand intuitively how this maps onto basically all my memories of anything. Basically, think about the last time you went on a holiday. What do you remember? Perhaps you remember a particularly beautiful view of the top of a mountain after a long hike. Or you remember the perfect day on the beach with your family. You might also actually picture that moment when your trip was bad, at that time when you lost your wallet, or maybe your firstborn child really briefly in the shopping centre. But whether these memories are happy or miserable, your overall impression of the last holiday likely featured a lot of particularly strong moments. You'll only be able to pick out a few. That's because we remember our lives in a series of snapshots rather than, unless you've got an eidetic memory, I think Sheldon Cooper on the band theory, a complete category of, of events. Our minds quickly average the moments that most stand out in our memories and they form our opinions of the past. The most emotionally intense points of an experience and the end of that experience are heavily weighted in how we remember an event. And the PCAM rule, brilliantly is a cognitive bias which impacts how people remember the past intense positive negative moments the peaks and the final moment of experience the end are heavily weighted in our mental calculus of how we perceive the events of something which happened and think about fpl how i remember the seasons 
this is definitely true for me. <laughs> and oddly, it's kind of a way that I kind of have this sense, even now, six years in, that I'm kind of hopeful for next year because last year, I remember the big things. These are the frankly lowlights for me. But I remember not captaining Salah, captaining Havertz early in the year and having a bit of a bad end. I remember things like, you know, not captaining Bruno, but being able to do okay towards the end of the season in prior years. And I guess what's important to remember is that the brain helps play a brilliant role in helping us forget all the negativity you can feel about a season. It's a bit like a neuralizer in the men in black that you can always bounce back because you remember the distant past and you remember those seasons as well in terms of the PKM rule. And I suppose as new season draws near, it's a great way of remembering that your brain will help you forget all about the negativity you remembered last year. You remember the high points, remember the low points, but we're raring to go, I guess, Simon, next year because of the PKM rule. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I always find PKM rule really interesting. I, I think, especially applied to football, and, and at the end of the season, is a really interesting uh, yeah, area to look at it because there are certain players who did very well towards the end of the season who we're probably mentally putting a premium on. Uh, yeah, one of the ones that, that springs to mind is, is Jamie Vardy, who you know didn't have the best season overall, but was very, very good uh, towards the end. I, I'm glad you used the example of uh, holidays. There's a really good uh, colonoscopy related. Uh, example of uh, the peak and rule uh, study something to do with uh, how the apparatus was removed whether it was removed carefully at the end or yanked uh, had a, a very strong effect on uh, whether people had fonder memories or not of their uh, colonoscopy. But yeah, I think in FPL, we really apply the the peak end rule. Uh, we overvalue players who score late on. Um, again, yeah, not, not, not trying to be mean to Ronaldo here, but um, yeah, Ronaldo is an example of a player who tends to win headlines with uh, with late goals but uh you know there were definitely periods last season where both the stats and the eye tests were were suggesting that you know these late goals weren't sustainable and and indeed that was the the case and um, we also tend to be very harsh on teams who lose their clean sheet uh, later on an uh, example of that i think is uh, crystal palace got a bit of a reputation for losing clean sheets later on and, and people were harsher on them you know because of it but actually yeah, defensively, they, they were one of the stronger teams. And the value that was available within Crystal Palace's defence was actually really, really strong last season. But they were less owned, partly, I think, because of this reputation that, that they got for losing their clean sheet late on. And, and obviously, you know, that can be one goal in the 90-minute game. If you concede in the 89th minute, it, it's the same as conceding in the in the first minute. But the way that we perceive it is uh, is quite different. And the way that we make judgments based on it is quite different. Cool. Well, I mean, of course, it's, it's really fascinating, isn't it? And towards the end of the season, I suppose your hyperbolic discounting, you spoke about a little while ago, can help us make sure we delay our gratification and ensure that we're making the best decisions when we can. But when it comes to sunk cost, we need to be dynamic and adaptive as managers. But it's also good to take a step back and make sure we're not reactive managers, as Ross said. Don't feel upset about going against the plan you've made. Whoever you are, if you tell people what you're doing, don't feel your word is law. And no matter what you do, it's always worth just kind of considering sunk costs, plan continuation bias. Everything's a work in progress. You're a work in progress and your FPL season's always a work in progress too. Life isn't fair, sadly as well. Gamba's fallacy, he blanked this week, but he'll score next. 
you need to observe that and make sure that you're not falling prey to that because many a time you'll see that expressed and you'll think, oh, that's terrible. But we all fall prey to this. And hey, you know what? There's always PCAM rule. There's a great chance your brain will help you forget all about this and just kind of make sure that things are kind of stored nicely in sequences to make sure next time you're raring to go depending on your colonoscopy, I guess, Simon. <laughs> anyway, um, that's your luck. Hopefully that's been really helpful in our ambitious attempts to look through how FPL plays out over the course of the season through the lens of a select few big-ticket heuristics and biases. My God, I've really enjoyed this. I can only imagine how heavily edited the version you're listening to is, but wow, that was really brilliant. Thanks so much to both of you for coming on. First, Ross, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much, Tom. I appreciate you inviting me on. And, and as always, it's been a pleasure. It's, it's incredible, the, the things that you bring to the table. Definitely check out Ross at FPL underscore Raptor on Twitter and check his YouTube videos out as well. Put so much work into them. 100% worth watching. Subscribe to his channel. Incredible stuff. And Simon, thanks again for coming on. I mean, so four visits to the pods. I mean, I think you're well up there in terms of one of the most frequent guests. And we'll definitely have you on again too. Thanks. It's been uh, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me on thank you man do, do i get a jacket if i do it five times if, if you're on um, saturday night live five times you get a jacket i'll give you a purple jacket you can be uh i want to say paul rudds i think was the last guy he got potential of his jacket anyway thanks everybody we were who got the assist and if you like listening to this please subscribe to the podcast and for new listeners please hit that five star rating across things like itunes spotify etc just because it helps the pod get out there further and by the time you listen to this, there should be loads of other preseason content out there from us, the likes of Ross. I'm sure Simon will be writing a bill from that scout. But we hope you enjoyed this. We hope it's just you think about the behavioural and psychological things which can impact you over the course of the season. And we'll speak to you again very, very soon. Goodbye. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Podcast Network.